Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Larry Mandelberg. Larry is a serial entrepreneur who solves complex business problems. He provides leadership team development, change mentoring, strategic planning, executive coaching, and ethics training to mid-sized organizations and their boards through his consulting practice. Larry has launched four startups, led a merger, and conducted a successful turnaround. Among his 13 businesses, he's also had the unfortunate pleasure of suffering business suicide firsthand, which the title of his book is Businesses Don't Fail, They Commit Suicide, which is one of my favorite titles. Uh, So (laughs) thanks for joining me today, Larry. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about, you know, because you've been in multiple startups and mergers and turnarounds. Why do you think businesses fail? What's going on here? Businesses always fail because of change. Oh. Sorry, that's that's it. It's that simple. Now, there are three things change impacts, but it's always about businesses, leadership in particular, who don't have experience, not expertise, not knowledge, experience, dealing with the change that they're being faced with. So they have to make guesses. Oh, and they're making the wrong guesses, I I suppose. Well, guesses always cause a little bit of friction, a little bit of turmoil, a little bit of time. The the, the, the key is to make bad decisions that don't kill you. Uh, (laughs) Warren Buffett was once, not Warren Buffett, um, Sam Walton was once asked, you know, how were you so successful? He said, good decisions. They said, well, how did you learn how to make good decisions? He says, experience. And they said, well, how did you get experience? He says, bad decisions. (laughs) So it's not that you don't make bad decisions. It's that you need to make the right bad decisions. And that leads me to the other half of the question, you know, Paul Harvey. No, Uh the rest Uh of the question. Sure. Organizations live in a state of maturity. There's a theory called corporate life cycle theory, which is the study of how organizations grow and die. It was developed in the 80s, became popular in the 90s, and it's stunningly accurate because it studies how human beings age within a business and what they do. So, you know, we all know how people age, right? We watch it. We see it. Wisdom teeth, puberty, loss of hair, blah, blah, blah. We we, we see this. It's totally predictable. Different timelines. So my research identified three stages of, and this is all kind of underpinned by the concept of corporate life cycle theory. Okay. So I found three stages in my research of uh, corporate of uh, organizational maturity. Now, this is independent of legal structure, independent of industry, uh, no retail, independent okay. of non-retail industry. 
and um, independent of, of size. Okay. There's youth, adolescence, and adulthood. Okay. Youth is narrow, shallow experience. Adolescence is narrow, deep experience. And adulthood is broad, deep experience. And those things come over time through doing stuff, right? Sure. Organizations in the stage of youth always fail because of a lack of clarity of purpose. So you make decisions because you don't understand what your purpose is. And there are components mm -hmm. to purpose, which I can explain. Organizations in the adolescent stage always fail because of a lack of consistency of performance. In other words, how can I make commitments to my employees if I can't be dependable? How can I make commitments to my customers if they can't depend on me? You have to be able to perform consistently as an organization. Organizations in the adulthood stage always fail because of a lack of engagement of people. Now, that's the human resources holy grail, right? Yeah. And I did a lot of research on this and understanding what it means is like saying, well, what does a mission statement mean? Well, there's 37 different answers, right? <laughs> Everybody has their own opinion. Sure. But I did get some good research out of um, Harvard Business Review and some other things, and it's documented in the book. And it talks about th the simplest way to say it is, is that people feel like the business is theirs and like they're a critical part of the business. So they have an emotional attachment to the business they're working for, whether it's a nonprofit, public sector, private sector, whatever. Right. And what happens is over time, because this is all time-based and a business that isn't growing is dying, you end up with somewhat larger organizations in adulthood. Now, now I know this isn't your target market, but I think it's valuable for, valuable for them to understand because it's where they're headed if they want to have a business that's sustainable. Right. Because right? they're going to keep growing if they stay alive. Over time, the administrivia of leadership forces them to be dealing with non-direct consumers. The further they get from that conversation, the less connected they are to what's happening in their consumers' markets and yeah. industries. Yeah. And if you don't have people in the organization who are paying attention to that because they care about the company and they want to make sure that what the company's doing is fulfilling the needs of the consumer, that information never gets to leadership. So strategic planning doesn't know where to go and they end up leaving their customers, their customers end up leaving them behind. And that's what happened with Sears recently, right? Sears went bankrupt because everything got, no, th their customers didn't like what they were selling. Right. So that's, that's a lack of engagement. So when you said to me before, why do businesses fail? I said change. Yeah. But the change impacts you in different ways. The first is clarity of purpose. The second is consistency of performance. And the third is engagement of people. And 23 years of primary research, Diane, eight years of proof of concept. I mean, I did this not academically, but scientifically with, you know, a thesis, a construct, a theory. This is what the data told me. Okay. So, uh, you know, I totally get that. And when you were talking about, you know, as, as a company gets bigger, the leadership gets further away from the consumer and the market and understanding what, what the needs are. So they need people there. Totally resonates with me. Um, but I can imagine that there are some people listening, thinking that the reason why companies struggle or fail is because of like a lack of funds or 
you know, that they're not making money or they're not making a profit or whatever. What is your take on that? So that's, I love that. Thank you. It's a fabulous question. Um, when I did my research, and it was just a, a statistically valid sample size of companies and executives in those companies, universally, and these are companies that had both failed, were in trouble, and had survived bad times. Universally, every one of them said the same thing. It was money. That's why we had trouble. Sure. And what I talk about, when I talk about retail, I always say to people, in retail, the customer is always right. In business to business, the customer is always wrong. So if your customer tells you something, just know that they're wrong. And the reason they're wrong is because they're looking at symptoms masquerading as issues. Funds, money, finance is a lagging indicator. It can't tell you anything until it's over. By the time you see a financial problem, the mistake you made, the bad decision you made is way in the past. And it's just caused your lack of funds. That's not the problem. The problem was the decision you made that caused you to have the lack of funds. So, you know, in the book, I talk about this a number of times. For those of you who say, "Why? how can you have a business book without a finance chapter? Well, I explain (laughs) why, because it doesn't have anything to do with sustainability. Yeah. It has to do with operations and profitability. I'm not saying it's not important. You got to have... The ability to collect, manage, make a profit. I mean, I, I, talk in the, I talk about a well-conceived business, and I deal with that in there. But it's the reason people have financial problems is because they make decisions that are based on the wrong things. And the classic for small startups or startups that are in the youth stage trying to get to the adolescent stage is they focus on more is better rather than better is more. Now, this has become very popular in the 2000 teens and the 2020s. I was taught this in the 1990s by a guy. So I've I've known about this. This is part of this comes out of corporate life cycle theory, right? Sure. And what happens is when you begin, you can't survive without money. You have to have sales. Now, if you do it well, you'll be properly funded. You'll have good pro formas and projections, and you'll know what it takes. And, you know, it's not that hard to, to run a business and make money. It's really not that hard to do if you know what you're doing. Right. But regardless of that, when you're in that early stage, the growth is so expensive because a little bit of growth co- creates a lot of cost, right? So you hire an employee, that's a big cost before you get any revenue off of them, whether they're admin, sales, or whatever. So there's it's this stepladder thing. It's a very common business concept. When you're in those early days, it's like, we got to find revenue. we got to find clients. we got to find customers. we got to get more. we got to get more. we got to get more. Right. What they do is they do that before they create clarity of purpose. They do not define the market that is best served by their expertise, Mm -hmm. their products and services, the value those products and services deliver, and the manner in which they deliver them. So they go after customers that are not good customers. 
They lose the ability to create econ economies of scale, and they end up having many little businesses that serve each customer in their own unique way. And you can't grow that way. Exactly. So that's where you end up with this money problem, because I got to have so much overhead costs to service all these different competing customers. Right. I right. can't create economies of scale. So you made a bad decision by not identifying your target market and focusing on it. All but, the time. Yeah. And, and let's also, let's just throw this in here as a kicker, because that's not where the bad news is. Think about all the time and money you wasted trying to sell to people who aren't your ideal market. Absolutely. When you have boatloads of people out there yeah. that want and need what you have. Yeah. That's the... the that's what happens. Yeah. So so they get into this adolescent stage and they're trying to be consistent, but they don't know who they're serving or why. Right. And and I get pushback on this because it seems simple, right? So I have a lot of my clients are involved with ag and they deal with water. So I have a lot of water districts and irrigation districts. And these people do very simple things, right? Yeah. You give the farmer water, you take the flood water off the land. We know our value. We know what we do. No, you don't. It's not the water. That's not the value. The value is being able to give the farmer insight as to how much water he's going to get when he says he wants it for the crop he's growing in the time frame he's doing it. And you're going to be responsible for making sure you fulfill your commitment to him. The delivery of the water is just the way you serve that. Yes. But that's not the value. Right. The value is you can say to him, you're going to invest a boatload of money into this crop yeah, that you're fighting mother nature already. Right. You know, and, and they go, Oh, I never, never thought about it that we, we just thought we were, you know, we give them water, we take it off. So clarity of purposes, I, I just can't stress it enough. And for those listeners out there, if you don't start with that, and, and it's, again, it's so simple. Who are we serving? Who are we who are we best serving? Who are the people that we should be talking to? Who are the people that need us? Right. What is the value we give them and how yeah. do we give it to them? If, yeah. if you don't start there and, and it goes from there. Absolutely. I'm I'm a hundred percent with you on that. I, I call it um, chasing after bad money mm -hmm. because it does so many negative things. You know, when you're out there, just got to have revenue, got to have revenue you're not going to make a profit on that. And so it's not just the cost of acquiring those clients. It's the, it's the opportunity cost that you have that, that because you're spending so much time trying to manage them and meet whatever you've said you'll do that you aren't able to go out and get the right kinds of clients. And there's so much bad to it. You know, it's yeah. just well, in, you're doing a lot of catering to individual needs. Yeah. And then and then the next thing that happens in that progression of stupid decisions is you end up with sunk costs that yeah. are dependent on small groups of customers that can't serve those costs. Right. So you can't recover it. Yep. If if you if you understand finance and sunk costs, I right. don't know. That's that's a little bit you know more mature yeah. finance, but yeah, no, I I mean I, I'm totally with you. And you had said something about hiring, and so I I want to go down this road too because I mm -hmm. think this is also you know when we talk about making decisions, this is one of the places where I think a lot of leaders 
are making um, dangerous decisions. So talk to me about job descriptions, because you have a problem with using job descriptions in hiring and managing, and I'm curious about why. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty PC way to talk about that, by the way. <laughs> I think a lot about the words that I use. Yeah, understood. So um, here's the thing. There are, I identified eight elements that have to do with creating organizational sustainability that are addressed in the book. Okay. Six of those elements have a direct connection to staffing, <laughs> whether it's recruitment or retention or, or management performance. So this is threaded through everything you do. I want to preface by saying that. Now, let me answer you directly. Why don't I like job descriptions? The reason I don't like job descriptions is because the people who write job descriptions begin by saying, let me give you an ex a simplistic example. Yeah. I just want this office to be clean. So they write a job description and it says, every day, empty the trash, vacuum the carpet, check the supplies for stock, see if there's any folders that are out and put them back in the file. So they go through this list of steps that have to be done, these tasks to keep the office clean. They give that to the person and the person says, oh, here's my task. Go do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Do it. And something's not on there. And the guy comes in in the office. It looks messy. And he says, the office is messy. Why didn't you do your job? And they go, well, it's not in my job. Yeah. So they give them tasks. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to give people tasks. I want them to give them goals or roles. Right. So in this case, what you say is your job is to keep the office clean. What a concept. You have a brain. You can yeah. think for yourself. Now, how do you do that? This is going to sound burdensome. And quality takes effort. Yeah. So I don't want to hear you out there listening to this telling me, you, I can't do this. It's too much work. That's fine. If you don't, you can commit suicide. It's your business. You can do what you want. <laughs> I've done it. I know what it feels like. It ain't fun, <laughs> but it's okay. Yeah. There's a company called Morningstar. It's not the rating company that rates mutual funds. It's a tomato processor in West Sac, yeah. California, Northern California. Yeah. Yeah, I worked for every processing plant over here. We have a bunch of them. It's a big tomato producer. Didn't like the way they ran their business. He started his own. He's now the largest, most productive tomato processing plant in the world. Wow. He runs a flat organization. You want a job there, you walk in the front door and you say to whoever's behind the counter, I want to work here. And they'll say to you, why? Yeah. What do you have to offer us? And that's how the hiring process begins. Hmm. And it's done by employees. Now, how does he make this work? You have to have a hierarchy. There's, I'm not arguing that. Hmm. But he has a thing he developed called a clue, a C-L-O-U, a calling letter of understanding. You have each employee talk to every other employee that they impact in the daily routine of what they do and say to them, here's my, here's what I believe my obligation is to you as a coworker. Am I meeting your needs? And they document that mm -hmm. my colleague obligations. They put it in writing, they sign it, and that's their job description. 
And it's created by the employees who are delivering value and serving one another. Because if any of those people don't do their job, the value chain breaks. Right. What a concept. Think yeah. about how strong a net that makes for an organization. And when you don't have management telling people what to do, you have people saying, this is what I need to do for you to make your job good. Here's what I need you to do for me to make my job good. Suddenly, you've got a self-managed group of people. Right. What is no? I mean, is that not amazing? They were written up in Harvard Business Review years ago, and the title of the column was First Fire All the Managers. <laughs> and and they're they're kind of like me. You know, they, you want to raise, you want to get somebody's attention. So you say something a little right. controversial. But it's and it's brilliant and it works, and I love it. And there is no absolute perfect way to do anything. There's there's yeah. no perfect job. There's no perfect company. There's no perfect solution to job descriptions. But when it comes to job descriptions, if you use that as the basis, you will have such a strong net of employee engagement and employee participation. Everyone will feel like they're valued. Think about that. Yeah. You're asking people, what do you need from me? Right. And I get to know what you need from me and I get to give it to you. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful That's why I don't like job descriptions. Yeah. Oh, listen, thank you for that. I, I it makes perfect sense to me. I, I love what that company's doing. It reminds me of um well, it reminds me of a program I do where I have it, it's internal customer service, you know, where you have to think about, okay, who who am I impacting and who's impacting me? It's the same sort of thing that that those folks are doing. What do I need from you? What do you need from me? How do we know? Because people don't talk about it. And then something falls down and it it dominoes when it's such an easy thing to resolve. You just have to be able to have those conversations. So let's talk about quiet quitting because, you know, we had the great resignation. Mm-hmm. We, we have quiet quitting. We have all sorts of strange things going on. Um, does this play into the same sort of thing that you were just talking about that, that if the employees are engaged with each other, then they have more um, connection and commitment and engagement to the overall. Yeah. I'm going to start by saying, I think you're the best podcast interview interviewer I've had all year and I've had a bunch of them that's an outstanding question and the answer is there's a big blob of stuff around employees and staff and it touches that blob that's not the key part of the blob that it blob that it touches but it is a part of the blob it touches okay but it goes back to an earlier component of the employee recruitment process When you understand clarity of purpose, when you recruit, you say, if you're the kind of person that likes to do this kind of work for these kind of companies and get this kind of reward, and if you want to be part of a team that's trying to create this kind of a thing, this might be a great place for you to come work. So when you recruit people that way, what you're doing is you're doing cultural engineering 
of your social environment. Yeah. You're looking for people whose values and aspirations are aligned with yours so that when they come to work, they don't have to have, this is going to blow your mind. And part of this comes from, um, um, what's his name? Seidman. Um, his name is Seidman. He wrote the book called How. You don't have to worry about command and control rules, and you don't have to worry about boundaries. Yeah. You, be, you develop a should culture. So when you have people who come to work and they don't have to worry about, you have to do this, you have to do this, militaristic, or these are the boundaries, these are the rules. Oh, okay, where's the line? Am I over the line? Am I next to the line? Am I on the other side of the line? What's right? What's wrong? No, it's should. In other words, your values match our values. What should you do? Okay, now I've just, now think about this. I've just yeah. recruited an employee based on what they're going to need to do. I put it in the recruitment piece. I've told them about what we're trying to do, who we're trying to do it with, where we're trying to go, what we believe in. And if you think that fits you, come. Who's going to want to leave that unless you're not being honest? So that's the beginning. That's the tent peg. That's the that's the tail you pin on the donkey. You have to take it further. But that's the beginning of that relationship that eliminates the ghosting. That's the beginning of it. So it's so funny. I mean, I, I it makes perfect sense to me. And it reminds me that, um, we, you know, we should be hiring more for a cultural fit than necessarily a you know, a position sort of thing that, that, that feels to me like a, a big mistake people make. Um, but you also said something really interesting, you know, it, it makes it hard for people to want to quit unless you're lying. And yeah. it, it leads me to the thought of, while I feel like this should be really easy for leaders to do, because you said something earlier about feeling cumbersome, but it's not because it frees up so much other time and expense moving forward for things, you know, that now you don't have to deal with, um, you know, swapping people out and whatnot, uh, that, that it really ends up, it's a time saver and, and a money saver. But I feel like it might be challenging for some leaders out there to really be able to embrace this concept completely if it's not what they start out with, if it's not what they're used to, if it's not how they were raised, so to speak, in, in the yeah. business world. Do you find that? Or yeah, let me yeah. Yeah, yeah. let me speak to that because you okay. hit a bunch of stuff I want to touch on. Okay. The way I would say that is that it's foreign concept to them. Yeah. So you're asking them to approach something that they don't have familiarity with and they don't have any trust with because they have no experience and you're asking them to believe it. Yeah. So the first thing is I, I do talk about this a lot in the book to an extent. And the, the example I, I use for people is most leaders agree that they should always look to hire people smarter than themselves. Okay. Smaller, earlier stage businesses, youth and adolescents, have a lot of trouble. Leaders, leadership and management has a lot of trouble letting go of responsibility. Yeah. So I asked them, 
do you think you're being successful at hiring people smarter than you? And they usually say, not as much as I'd like, but yeah. And I say, so if you're hiring people smarter than you, why aren't you asking them what should be done? Why aren't you giving them the responsibility? Because you just got done telling me they're smarter than you are. Why are you so afraid to give them responsibility? And then that almost always flips that switch. Oh, shit, I have to think about this different. That's all I need to do. Then I can tell them stories and walk them through things that gives them a sense of comfort with a tra- an attempt. Now, let me, let me go back and okay. touch on a couple of things. I have a background in the auto parts business, and one of the most brilliant ads I've ever seen was the one from Fran years and years ago. So you can pay me now or you can pay me later. <laughs> Remember that? Yes. <laughs> okay. So you buy a $6 oil filter or a $600 motor. Well, that's, right. that was you know, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. But I'm telling you, if you have the option to do something easy and something hard, nine times out of 10, you do it hard, you're going to get better and great results at the end. And it's worth it because you won't be playing whack-a-mole with symptoms. Right. This is where symptoms give you problems. Yeah. Keep trying to fix this thing. It won't go away. Wham, whack-a-mole, wham, whack-a-mole. It's because you're not attacking the problem. You're attacking right. the symptoms. The last thing I want to mention is you talked about a cultural fit. And this is a danger zone. I want to be very careful about this. I talk about cultural engineering, and it's got a negative connotation. Racism, et cetera, et cetera. Smart people kill the dumb people, you know, put the smart people on the on the, on the the airship. And when the world blows up, and we'll have a better society on the next planet. That's it's not what we mean. Diversity is one of the most powerful things that you can bring into an organization. Absolutely. So when we talk about a cultural fit, we're not necessarily talking about PLUs. You know what a PLU is? People like people us. Like us. Yeah. What you want is people who have common wants, desires, and beliefs. A, a dear friend of mine, a, a Hispanic woman, sharp. Gosh, she's so sharp. Built up a law firm, incredibly successful. We were working on the Prop 187 thing here in California on a task force for the government, which was the one about banning illegal immigrants from public services. And she was, was a, she was on this task force, and we got done with the task force, and she came over to me, and she says, you know, Larry, it never occurred to me before. The, everybody that works for me is a female Hispanic. Wow. I have absolutely no diversity. I never saw it. I never recognized it. I never would have believed I would do something like that, but I did. Shame on me. Wow. And it's just because it's comfortable. So I want this diversity thing. I want your listeners to be very clear that this diversity comes with some challenges because you will get people who have very radically different beliefs than you from their cultural background. That's not a problem. That's a good thing because it brings different perspectives and viewpoints, but you have to have common beliefs and values and you have to have a common or an aligned sense of purpose. Yes. Right. There's two different things and you got to keep those separate. That's, that's, those were my notes. So thank you for letting me jump that in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Listen, I'm all about that. I wrote an article for Newsweek about that very thing. That the the value of that diversity of thought mm-hmm. and ideas and experiences, you know, it, it, this is all about um, not 
having a whole bunch of PLUs because it, it's hard to be, well, it's impossible to be innovative if you don't have free thinkers around you. So um, I got to give you a fun fact. What is it? A kick out of this. The last critique group when the manuscript was done to go through my book, this is a business book. It was a group of evangelical Christians. Eight of them. Because? I wanted to see their perspective. And did I get some valuable insight from those people? They didn't understand most of it. Some of them understood a lot of it. Yeah. They all had brilliant questions and they pushed me. And they helped me with clarifying things that I weren't wasn't writing clearly or making assumptions. But those people had nothing to do with me other than a desire to produce quality writing. We both had the same values. We both had the same goals. Right. 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 Boom. Very good. Oh, my gosh. Larry, I could probably talk to you forever, but we can't. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Will you let the listeners know, you know, how they can find you, how they can get your book, all that great stuff? Absolutely. And thank you for that. There's two things I'm going to give you. I hate to do it, but one of them is businessesdontfail.com. That's the easy way to get to the book. Businessesdontfail.com, just like it's spelled. We're updating the website, but right now there's no link to the blog. So you get to that on Mandelberg dot b-i-z okay sorry for the double i know no, that's okay mandelberg.biz that. is what i had so yeah i'll make sure i add the other one thank you excellent well thank you as i said i appreciate it and listeners thank you you are who we're doing this for thank you for tuning in to this episode of accelerate your business growth a production of evergreen podcasts Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.